0: nishant is this a therapy session or is
1: this an interview <laughs> you're funny okay here we go hey my friends this is nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant garg show this is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by Friday Newsletter. Every Friday, I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers, which mentions what I'm learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, or just anything. You can find the newsletter link at https colon slash slash dot me and today's guest is Patricia Carpus. Patricia is Meditation Studios' co-founder and head of content. She is also the host of Untangle, Meditation Studios' original podcast with over 4 million listens to date that shares stories from experts and thought leaders about how mindfulness practices change us. She is a New York native and former media executive at CNBC, NBC, and AOL. She is passionate about health and wellness and deeply committed to having a positive impact on the world. She co-founded Meditation Studio app with the simple goal of making meditation accessible to everyone. This little app has gone on to do big things. Named one of Apple's top 10 apps of the year, Meditation Studio has helped millions of people start a meditation practice. In 2018, Meditation Studio was sold to the makers of Muse, the brain sensing headband. This episode is part one of my conversation with Patricia. Patricia discusses how she learned to be self-reliant from a very early age, how she launched the Meditation Studio app, when she feels over meditated and much, much more. If you enjoy this episode, you will love the short and sweet part two with Patricia on cultivating relationships in personal and business setting. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Patricia. Patricia, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's a joy to be here.
1: It's my pleasure. First of all, thank you so much for being a service to this podcast. And there are millions of directions that I can go and start with. And I am thinking that, how about we start with, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
0: Oh, that's a very, that's a gigantic question, but uh, let's try and narrow it down. I grew up outside of New York City in a pretty large family. There are five siblings and then my parents each remarried. And so we had eight in our blended family. And yeah, so it was a very, it was a very complicated childhood in a way, because in my neighborhood, in my school, as I was growing up, my family was one of the first to experience divorce. And so that was a very traumatic experience for all of My siblings and myself. So, you know, I think we learned how to cope with trauma and uncertainty and complicated relationships from a very early age.
1: And in the preparation of this interview, I learned that you had self reliant tendencies from an early age. Would you say that you learned to be self reliant due to? your parents' divorce and other trauma-related things? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think I learned to be independent at at a very young age. I was very close to my younger brother and I, I helped him with everything. So I think I played a little bit of a maternal role for him when I was 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. You know, usually when kids are out playing and being teenagers, you know, I was really helping and supporting him. He was five years younger than me. And just dealing with all kinds of, I guess, complicated is the only real way to say it, complicated situations for a child. And I felt like it was at that early age, and I used to write in journals quite a bit, I just decided that I always wanted to be able to Take care of myself. I wanted to learn as much as I could about personal growth and resilience, and, and then I had a, a very strong yearning to be of service. So those were some of the things that I was thinking about in my teenage in my teenage years.
1: So I'm curious to ask you, what was your relationship with your parents in your early childhood years?
0: Nishat, is this a therapy session or is this an interview? <laughs> you' funny, okay, here we go, okay, my relationship i was super I was very very close with my father he he I was the first born daughter, so we were very very close and when my parents were divorced, he was the one he remarried a year later and lived in a home with three other children, three of his wife's children and my mother was a very complicated uh woman and I think she would have been a much happier person had she lived now, sort of in the era of mindfulness and well-being and sort of coming out of the closet on issues related to mental health. Because I think she really did struggle a lot with depression and always feeling like if this happens, then I'll be happier. And I, I remember the story she used to tell, you know, she thought she'd be happy when she married my father. She thought she'd be happy when she had children and then she kept having more children. She had five children and she never quite really, I don't think in her lifetime, she died about 10 years ago. I don't know that she ever felt happy. I, I feel like she would have so benefited from all of the things that you talk about, for instance, on your podcast and I talk about on my podcast. It would have been such a, you know, such a great, such great things for her to have in her toolkit. But so she, we had a very good relationship, but she wasn't someone that was a role model for me. She was somebody that was a role model in that I wanted to be the opposite of her. I didn't want to do anything that she had done because that looked like it was a real path for unhappiness Did you have any
1: role model while growing up?
0: I didn't actually I asked that question to a lot of people as well <laughs> I have different role models and and mentors if you will like throughout my life, but not like a traditional role model not somebody that i really looked up to and thought oh that's a model of who i want to be i mean for me it's been a progression in my life of all of my experiences and all of the courses and all of the books and all of the you know people that i've spoken to that have you know sort of fueled me on my journey and fueled my passions for you know being curious and lifelong learning and looking at things from different perspectives. But but I don't really remember as a child having a role model or even in my younger years. And now when I look at, you know, as I get older, some of my role models are colleagues of mine or friends that are younger. You know, they sort of come from all different walks of life. And I just look at people and say they have something that is, that draws me to them. And I learn so much from them in one way or another. And so I think that's the closest to a, a role model that I've had. Could
1: you share any memorable learning that you have, you would have learned from any of your role models or mentors or any of your colleagues?
0: Okay. Yeah. So there was, there's one woman that is, she's an author but she was, when I was an executive, so my background is media. I worked in the media business for 25 years in New York City. Very hardcore, somewhat cutthroat, very traditional, <laughs> but also a lot of fun. You know, you we went to the Olympics and Super Bowl, you know, it was a very, in some ways glamorous, but also very, you know, tough environment in the different companies that I worked for. And... One of my peers, her name is Fran Hauser, and she wrote a book called The Myth of the Nice Girl. And she ran one division and I ran, she ran movies at AOL and I ran television. And so we we were, as I said, we were peers. And she was the most <laughs> kind, compassionate, effective leader that I had ever met. And I had already, I'd already worked at CNBC, at NBC, you know, I'd already had a pretty, you know, 11 or so years in business, maybe more by the time I met her. And I just was so um, taken by the the devotion of the people that worked for her, the way that she managed in a very non-hierarchical way. And she always seemed to come from a place of love. And I don't, I think everybody can do that. It was but I think she had such a like in very strong intelligence and high empathy and those two things together helped her to be an incredibly strong leader. And she and I became very close friends. I think I went into her office like in 2008 or 2009 and said you have to write a book because there's something that you're doing that other leaders aren't doing and i felt like it needed to be packaged and shared and so and that was you know that was really the start to her book journey she uh, she released her book a couple of years ago but she had had a lot of different ideas about how to approach it because her she had such a unique i want to say wholehearted style and i had never really seen that in business at that point at that stage,
1: is it the same book, The Myth of the Nice Girl?
0: Yeah, it's called The Myth of the Nice Girl: Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. And it it's it was so interesting because so many women felt like they needed to be tough or they need to t- needed to take on a sort of male model of management. And she just had such a soft but strong. I think that's the best way to put it. She was like, you can lead with kindness. You can be soft and strong. And so she, for me, she was a really brilliant example of how to lead effectively. And now when we look at like mindful leadership, she had all those skills, deep listening, you know, really understanding where another person was coming from, treating people with respect and kindness. And yeah. So I feel like she was the uh, original Mindful leader. Before you know, we even were talking about the word mindfulness in before, business. Before <laughs>
1: became, yeah,
0: possible. yeah, <laughs> she's 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 awesome. I would say she's my role model in that way.
1: Yes, and I feel that this is the right time to get into the mindfulness meditation zone in this interview with you. So you come from a business, media, cable television, and entertainment industry, and then you switched to tech sector of meditation. So I would love to ask you, how did you get introduced to meditation?
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say the tech center because I was never it wasn't that I was gravitating to technology even though that's where I am right now. It was always that I wanted to work in areas after having been in finance at CMBC and entertainment at NBC and then television another extension of entertainment at AOL you know i felt like i really wanted to i was gravitating towards health and well-being uh, that was what had always been a personal passion of mine and so i felt like i could take the business experience that i had and really move in that direction of the things that i was passionate about things i cared deeply about and so i started meditating a long time ago and then it it became a tool for me personally to be in to be better in relationship to be better at work to feel more calm and grounded there, there were so many things that learning meditation had done for me but the shift in my career came at a point when I just felt like it was time to really do the things that I was personally passionate about. And so I started really studying all the things that were important to me related to well-being, nutrition, yoga, life coaching. You know, I looked at all these different areas and started consulting for a company, uh, a yoga company called Gaiam. And a couple of years into that, the COO of Gaiam asked me if I wanted to help work on or help them to create a meditation app. And I was very excited about that because I had personally been meditating, but I hadn't really investigated the entire world of mindfulness and meditation at that point yet. But I was personally, I'd studied Buddhism, I'd studied meditation, but I hadn't done anything necessarily in business. So we started the app inside of Gaiam and then my business partner and I acquired it from Guyam and took it off on our own in 2016. And that's really, that was the beginning of Meditation Studio, the app that, that we had created. And it was really, you know, it was a business and it was intended to be a business, but it was such a passion project for both my business partner and I. And that was another, like my business partner was, we had the most, we couldn't have been more opposite, but we were the most competitive compatible business partners either of us had ever had. And so we had this just great, she was all technology, operations, finance, I was creativity and content and meditation. You know, we just, we just really worked so well together. And after we launched the app, a lot of things happened in her life that uh, made it complicated. Her, Her mother died and she had to take some time off and it was just the two of us. And one day we got an email at like 6 a.m. She she was in, I, I don't know, Nebraska, or she lives in the Netherlands now with her husband. And we got an email from Apple saying, congratulations, you've you've been chosen as one of the top 10 apps of the year. And we were just, we were, we thought we were, I don't know what we thought. We thought we were like... <laughs> In a dream, it was like six a.m. in the morning when I was looking at it, and I think she texted me or called or something, and we were like, "This can't be real." Like, but but I say that because first of all, it was the moment that fueled us, that gave us this great enthusiasm about what we were doing. It was like we loved what we were doing, but we hadn't, we didn't have a lot of customers. We were, in a way, we were competing with Headspace and Calm, and we had, we didn't have any kind of financial backing at that time. And so it was a really, it was, it was really exciting. And it gave us that little push that we needed to gain some momentum and to keep going. And so that was, that was really how the beginning of how we got into that business. And then I know, you know, you, you probably have, you probably read this because it sounds like you do a lot of homework, but (laughs) so so I, we had created Meditation studio, and we had and still do, you know, over 800 or 900 meditations, 10 different courses. We have now 70, maybe 80 teachers from all over the world that create the content for us. And we were acquired by Muse, the brain sensing headband that was co founded by someone else that you've interviewed, Ariel Garten. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we were acquired by Muse two years ago. So, so it's been a really interesting journey, but that's really the progression of how I got from media into meditation and now technology and technology and meditation. And I'm still so passionate about this, this area and its ability to help people be more resilient to improve mental health. I feel like it's the simplest stuff and the hardest for people to believe how important and how beneficial it can be in life
1: what i love about meditation studio app is that there are many many meditation types in different categories you have a gra- you have a meditation practice for gratitude health wellness calm peace and there are many teachers one of the main teachers or my favorite teachers is Elisha Ghostin. Ah, and I've talked to Elisha on <laughs> the right. podcast as well. I saw that. I saw
0: that. Yeah.
1: So Please. Patricia, I'm curious to ask you that traveling back in your life when you discovered meditation in your undergrad, and this is my, this is part of my preparation. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You discovered meditation in your undergrad, and you kept pushing meditation out of your mind until late 30s. Is that yes. correct? Yes. What was that that you were resisting for with meditation in your thirties?
0: When I was in undergrad, I had gone to take a transcendental meditation course with a boyfriend at the time, and, and we were both I guess we were seventeen. And I think I thought that that would be that was such a popular type of meditation at that time. But for several reasons, including the fact that your your mantra was supposed to be a really secret mantra, and you're not supposed to tell anybody your mantra, But and they give you this mantra. And my boyfriend and I had decided we were going to share our mantras, <laughs> and, it, and they ended up being the same. And so I just – I think transcendental meditation is – Amazing! I just interviewed someone yesterday that's been doing it for years, and it's changed his life. And I know there's a lot of research that supports it, but at that moment when I was 17, and we both had the same mantra, I'm like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not doing this. I don't, you know, I don't trust them. I don't believe that it is going to work if they, you know, did that. But then I went in um, my 30s. I, I was, you know, that's a really tough time for young women in New York, and I was working really hard in a very you know, as I said, you know, it can be a rough and tumble business. And I went up to Omega Institute, which is an institute in upstate New York that has lots and lots of courses. And I took a weekend course from a Sri Lankan monk and learned how to meditate. And it was so emotional because we sat in silence a lot and we, it was a lot of chanting. And I hadn't done anything like that at the time. I had studied philosophy in college a little bit. But this was, I hadn't really studied Buddhism yet. And it was overwhelming. And the silence was very emotional. And I do, I, I remember crying a lot during the weekend because I I think, and I see this with some of the people that I teach. I see that when you become silent for the first time in your life or you focus inward and you're not busy or distracted or on autopilot, it can be very Overwhelming. And so that was really the beginning for me. And it's a very different kind of meditation than I do now, but that's where I started. I was just going to ask if you meditate and what's your meditation practice?
1: (laughs) I love that when I get asked (laughs) the questions like this. So I have been meditating for the last three years.
0: Oh, okay. Good.
1: I practice for about 20 to 30 minutes every day. I miss. Meditation once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. When I meditate, I feel great. And my mm-hmm. mantra is when you hesitate, then meditate.
0: Ah, I like it. That's good.
1: So Patricia, I yeah. am wanting to ask you, I have a follow-up question on your story with your boyfriend. So was it did you go to Omega Institute? This is a personal retreat center after you had broken up with your boyfriend?
0: Yeah, that's what you got from the Rob Dube interview. Yes, I think. <laughs> Rob
1: Dube's blog post right. on Phobes.
0: <laughs> yes, I had broken up with someone. It was a very emotional time for me, and so that was probably another reason that I was emotional during the weekend. But you know, what's really interesting is that I, I think it's really important to learn meditation mindfulness, breathing, resilience techniques before you're in any kind of a crisis. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine whose sister has stage four cancer, lung cancer, and she was saying, I wish she could meditate because she's going through this such a difficult time. And it's fine for her to learn to meditate now. But it would be so much better if she had that skill to rely on and comfort her as she's going through what she's going through. So, so yeah, I learned meditation when I was going through a challenging time, and it was the best gift I, I could ever imagine and I don't want to sound like a, a fanatic about meditation um, <laughs> because I don't think it's a, it's not a cure-all and it's not, it's maybe even not for everyone. But for me, meditation is about increasing and, and mindfulness tools. So I look at it as almost like a life life management toolkit. So you you learn to be more self-aware. You learn to emotionally regulate. Most people deal a lot with ruminating about a topic or something someone did or something that triggered them, or they are rehearsing the future and they go down these paths, which might be, you know, catastrophizing or, you know, deciding something's going to be a certain way without really knowing it. And you know, we do so many, we have so many dances that we do with our minds and, When you learn how to do some kinds of meditation, you learn how to be in relationship with your emotions in a different way. You learn how to be with your thoughts without them overwhelming or overpowering you. There's this, this, this way that you can observe them instead of being, you know, as Dan Harris says. I love the way he speaks. He's like, just get yanked around by your thoughts, and they're not even like thoughts that you choose. They <laughs> they're just come from these, you know, random places that have been, you know, it's like the alchemy of your brain. But you do have a prefrontal cortex, which is like the CEO of your brain, which can, which can really direct. Those thoughts sometimes or help you to step back and observe them in a different way. So I I really think if you're somebody that is an emotional being, which many of us are, these tools can be so, so helpful.
1: Now, what is your current meditation practice look like?
0: I meditate first thing in the morning and I meditate for 20 minutes and I do really simple A pasana breath awareness meditation, but I always add some compassion practice in with that as well. And I do journal. I journal, and that's really it's part of my practice, right? So I meditate and then I I journal, and so that's all really helpful for me as a way to start my day. And then I sometimes do a second meditation during the day, but my work is such that. Sometimes I feel over meditated, (laughs) like some people (laughs) feel over medicated. I feel over meditated because I'm um, working with our teachers that, you know, like Elisha, working with teachers to write meditation courses, to write meditations, to record, and I'm reviewing them. So I'm always doing something that is related to meditation, mindfulness, contemplative practice and then i read all of the books of the people that i'm interviewing on our podcast untangle and so, and then i ask questions of people about how they meditate what it what it does for them and lots of other questions as well but over meditation well yeah, it's all like there's a my life is very much you know in, engaged in this topic so yeah so so that's really so that's my practice it's my work and my life.
1: When you wake up in the morning, do you practice meditation first thing or what are your other practices in the morning when you wake up?
0: Yeah. So I wake up and I, I really, I sit up and it's the first thing I do. And I'm really lucky because I have a six month old puppy that lets me do it. (laughs) I don't know for your listeners that have had puppies, they will tell you that normally the first thing you have to do is is take them for a walk or feed them. And my puppy's just like he's been trained to meditate with me. Well he's not really meditating. He's just <laughs> wait waiting peacefully. But so that's what I do. I do it first thing. I really, I just it's it's like this transition into the day. And I focus on my breath, as I said, and then I I I do, in my practice, I do wishes for, for either people or for things that are going on in the world. And, you know, that's a practice that is would be considered a, a compassion practice or loving kindness where you wish something for others.
1: What advice would you give to somebody who wants to meditate, but sometimes struggle to meditate or be consistent at this practice?
0: Yeah, I love that question because I feel like everybody comes to meditation when they're ready or at different times. So I think it's best to either find a teacher to learn meditation, take a course on Zoom, or use an app. And, you know, find the kind of meditation that you prefer, because, you know, you can learn transcendental meditation, you can learn mindfulness based stress reduction, there are all these different styles of meditation. And if you try something, you know, some for some people that have very, you know, busy, active minds, and they say, I can't meditate, my mind's too busy, my thoughts are overwhelming me. For them, maybe a guided meditation is the best thing because the guided meditations can be very calming. They can be very inspiring. No, you mentioned all of the different collections that we have. Well, so there are meditations for stress, for anxiety, for sleep, for pain. If If you're a mom or a teenager or we have lots of kids' meditations, we have meditations for cancer comfort for fertility like so i say all of that because part of my work is trying to understand what people need and how to give them what they need and so we're always trying to create new types of meditations that will help people wherever they are whether they can't sleep or they're going through chemotherapy or they're a busy working mom with five kids working doing school from home you know we're always trying to create that so so i would say it's really an exploration that each person should do for themselves but the easiest way is to find a teacher take a class and if you don't like that teacher or class drop out <laughs> because <laughs> it's like going to a yoga class and not liking it and saying you hate yoga you know there are so many different teachers different voices different styles and I think that there are, are many different ways to learn, but if I were starting from scratch I would take a course or I would get an app and do a course a beginner's course on an app. I might get the Muse headband. I mean so we're still like I I work with Muse now. I'm a part of the Muse family. So I don't mean for this to be an you know shameless promotion, but Muse is a brain sensing headband. It's kind of great like holiday gift or something to get for yourself, but it's a Brain sensing headband that syncs with your Muse app and gives you feedback on your meditation. So, if you're trying to learn to meditate and you're wearing the Muse headband, when you are triggered, you will hear like heavier weather sounds or there'll be a soundscape. And so, you, you will see the connection between what happens in your brain when you're being triggered by something that is unpleasant. And then you can go back to your breath. It's a breath attention practice. You go back to your breath and you see that the weather calms down. So you learn how coming back to your breath over and over again can be a great tool to regulate your nervous system, to keep you more calm and grounded. So that's a, a really great way to learn to meditate too.
1: Do you see any connection between meditation and good sleep? And the reason I'm asking is that (laughs) Forbes mentioned you as a sleep expert.
0: Forbes mentioned me as a sleep expert?
1: There was Uh, a blog (laughs) featured on Forbes.com and they referred you as a sleep expert.
0: Well, it was a few years ago. Okay. It's interesting. I mean, I am, I'm not like a cognitive behavioral therapist or a neuroscientist or, you know, but I've, interviewed many people on sleep on my podcast. We had done a sleep course, we've done many sleep meditations. I wouldn't call myself an expert on sleep, but at this stage in my own personal like evolution, I have I have learned what it might take to get a good night's sleep. And again, I think this is going to be really different for different people, depending on what your personal challenge is and if you have any medical issues. But if you, are, if you don't have medical issues, there are you know, a pretty you know, standard group of things that would be super helpful in order for you to get a good night's sleep. And the new Muse headband is specifically designed for sleep, for helping you get to sleep and for tracking your sleep overnight
1: there was a point in my life when i struggled with the sleep and the Ah, reason was stress hardships breakups with girlfriends Mm. and those stresses were impacting my sleep so Mm. now in my life if, if i'm not sleeping well seven to eight hours i become like a zombie i my i can operate but my productivity my functioning really the kindness component, the compassion component doesn't work if I'm not sleeping. So, Patricia, I'm hmm. curious to ask you yeah. did you have any challenge in getting a good sleep anytime yeah. in your life?
0: Oh, always, a 100%. But I want to say to you that one thing that this one doctor that I interviewed said to me was the best thing you can do. If you're if you're having trouble sleeping is to lower your anxiety about not sleeping so for example like when I use I my schedule is very flexible now so I'm lucky in that way but when I used to have to get up at 6:30 and you know work out and get to work by eight o'clock or you know that was very stressful because if you're up in the middle of the night you're you're telling yourself I'm I'm gonna be sleeping sleepy all day. I'm going to be really cranky. I am going to feel horrible. I'm not going to be able to wait till I can get home. And it's all of that, you know, it's like your your secondary story that you tell yourself about what's going to happen that creates all the stress in your body. And so that one thing that he told me, like just relaxing about not sleeping, and there's some research that suggests that rest isn't as great as sleep, but rest is good. And so even if you're in bed for six or seven hours and you're not sleeping the whole time, but you're calm and you're just allowing yourself not to get all anxious about not sleeping, you will feel much better the next day. So I don't sleep all that well all the time. And my puppy is very restless now too, but I feel fine during the day. I I don't feel like I need as much sleep and I just feel good and I feel just as energetic. But when I have a stressful night's sleep, that's a different story. Or if I have very agitated dreams, that's a different story. But if I can be calm in bed, even if I'm not sleeping, it's better.
1: How many hours do you sleep on a good day?
0: I don't know. Maybe five? (laughs) How about you? How many do you sleep now? Or you said seven. Seven to eight. Mm.
1: If I'm sleeping five hours, yeah. I won't be able to talk to you on this podcast.
0: Uh, I won't be
1: able to be present.
0: Really? Your mind just wanders and you daydream? I eat. I eat. Oh, okay. That's your <laughs> stress mechanism. <laughs> if well, I'm
1: not you, sleeping.
0: Do you have any, like, regular things that you do to sleep better like what happens to you when when you don't get your 7 hours like is it because you've uh, eaten too late at night or like what are you doing have you been able to see what it is that's causing that
1: sometimes stress i handle my stress but sometimes when the stress becomes unbearable it impacts my sleep even if i sleep for 5 hours or 6 hours that is not enough for me because i've trained my body and mind to have mm. 7 to 8 hours of sleep and if i can get 7 hours of sleep i feel good i feel really calm mm-hmm. my i'm very very present if i'm not able to get that number it becomes challenging for me to be present and be a good listener mm-hmm. and it's it gets easier for me to be frustrated and not being kind i ah. driving i may honk a lot
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you live so in a many. big city.
1: <laughs> so now, Patricia, I'm curious to ask you about happiness and joy. In one of your blog posts, you have written about ten life lessons from happiness experts, including Tal Ben-Shahar, Elisha, and I'm including Tal Ben-Shahar because I have I've had the honor of talking to him on the podcast as well in the past. So they talk about prioritizing positive activities flip the switch making yeah. social connections soften your expectations create random acts of kindness celebrating mistakes so patricia could you pick one or two uh, and explain
0: well let's see why don't you just why don't you mention one and i'll talk about it
1: celebrating mistakes
0: okay i thought you were going to say that how are you going know,
1: to so... mistakes well i
0: i think that the language that we use to describe what's happening in our worlds can be very harmful. So when you look at a mistake and you think you something goes wrong and you look at it as a failure and you feel shame around that failure, then that's going to make you feel terrible. And it's going to create, it may even create some like little Traumas in your body because of the way that you're telling yourself a story. Why did I do that? I'm so horrible. That was not a smart thing to do. And it's all of that self talk, that inner critic that just pounces on a mistake. And a mistake is really, I think it was Dave Asprey who I was interviewing that said he was teaching his kids to celebrate every mistake. I think that's where that that one might have come from. And he wanted them to feel like each mistake was a stepping stone to learning something that you didn't know before. So I feel like a lot of this has to do with reframing something from a negative to a, a more positive and I think that's good for you know body and heart.
1: Could you give us an, an example from your life when you made a mistake could be small or big and you celebrated that?
0: <laughs> oh. Oh my gosh. I can't think of one right now. I mean, I'm, 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 I've made plenty. I mean, I've made, you know, I would say, I mean, I could give a small mistake, like what I did when my turkey fell into the bottom of the oven and all the juices fell in them uh, onto the bottom of the oven and then started burning. But, or I could do a big one, like staying in a job too long when you didn't have, when I didn't have like the courage to go on you know, didn't have the confidence to leave a job, you know? So I don't, I don't know how to, you know, for, for me now when I make, I don't even, I, I mean, I don't even use words like mistake or failure so much in my vocabulary anymore, but a lot of the things that I've done, yeah, have taught me things that I really needed To learn. So I'm sorry, I can't think of something like super specific other than that turkey falling on the bottom of my oven.
1: You mentioned that you don't use words, mistake, and failures. So, what would be the good word to replace mistake and failures?
0: Challenges and learning opportunities. I think that's a good one. Yeah. So, what is a mistake? Can you think of the last mistake you made? It just feels really funny to say that. I mean, Maybe you have a regret about the way you handled something, you went on autopilot, you flipped your lid, like a lot of things like that. But is it a mistake or is it part of your journey to get from one place to another? Like what's the last mistake you can remember making? Mm -hmm. Or like to not record when you're doing a podcast, like, oh, that has happened to me. I've done a whole podcast and not hit record.
1: Which is part of resiliency, that we (laughs) can make mistakes and not beat ourselves. And Mm -hmm. then having that healthy relationship with that inner critique, because that inner critic voice always comes.
0: Always. And then having a bit of a sense of humor and knowing that people will understand and that that's part of, you know, that vulnerability or accepting that we're not perfect helps us to be more intimate with one another. Absolutely. So, Nishant, you didn't say what was your last mistake?
1: (laughs) I make mistakes every day.
0: Okay. There you go.
1: One of the mistakes that I am thinking right now is sometimes that inner critique comes that I should have prepared more for this podcast interview. I spent less time. I should have prepared more. I should have asked this question in this way, in this manner. The sequencing was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, I should have started this way. I should have ended that way. But I've become much, much comfortable with all these things. I don't tend to judge myself for anything. I don't judge the outcome. I try to think, how can I improve? I think the framing or the reframing matters a lot. What happened, happened. We can't change. It's finding new ways to get better.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good example because... I have, I feel some of that too. I want to be, I want to help someone tell their story when I'm interviewing them. And if, if they, I want to be able to help them tell their story. And if I don't do that, then I feel like, oh gosh, I missed that opportunity or I forgot to ask them this or that. But I think, I think I believe that the story that comes through is the story that's supposed to come through. And so I try not to beat myself up about those things.
1: And I want to ask you about one of the techniques that you practice in your day-to-day challenges, which is RAIN, R-A-I-N.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Could you talk to us about that RAIN practice?
0: Yeah. Are you, have you ever practiced it? Or are you familiar with it at all? I've heard of
1: that. I've heard of that, but I don't practice it in the times. So that is why I want you to elaborate on that.
0: Okay. Well, it's, it's a, I would call it like a compassion and mindful inquiry process for when something is going on in your life. Like Tara Brock, who's one of my favorite, she's a psychologist and a mindfulness teacher in the insight meditation tradition. And she's just so wonderful and brilliant. And I recommend her her podcast which is mostly her doing these amazing talks and she's also got books on this topic and there are a lot of other you know expert mindfulness teachers that talk about the rain method and they talk about it in a couple of different ways but so rain is an acronym for r is to recognize what's going on so if you've been triggered or you're feeling sad or angry or frustrated and you're or agitated, and you just need to like sit down in your meditation, or just sit down in silence and kind of go through this process with yourself. To so you recognize what it is that's happening, and the A is to acknowledge it and accept it. It's here. It's this is what's here in this present moment. I can't change this. Maybe I can change what I do next, but I this is what's here right now and so you're accepting that and the i is for investigate or inquire so you then you begin really you know sitting with that and noticing how the accepting of this thing is making you feel being with it maybe asking some questions of yourself and just sitting and then the N is to. There were two ways that people interpret the N. One is non-attachment, so you sort of separate yourself from this, so you've you're observing it. You're not attached to this this thing that you're thinking about, or nurture. N is for nurture, which is to really that's this idea of being more compassionate with yourself and self-compassion. So you're. Some people will say, like a Sharon Salzburg will say it's okay. You know, Her, the nurturing part of it will be like, it's okay, sweetie, you're going to be fine. Like it's, you know, that's the part where you're taking care of yourself and giving yourself what you need. And I like this process because it's very much a really straightforward way to kind of accept what's happening in the moment and be with it, whatever it is. And then also there are self-compassion practices that are like, in life, there are difficult moments. This is a difficult moment. May I be kind to myself in this moment. I think Elisha Goldstein originally taught me that little short meditation <sighs> practice, but this is this is life. And may I be kind to myself in this moment. But that's the RAIN practice, that there are many, many different practices from different traditions. And so The idea is not to get uh, overwhelmed, but to start with really simple and effective practices like uh, breath awareness practice or a mantra, you know, focusing on either your breath or the mantra or a body scan. You know, they're really um, simple ways to to work with meditation. But there are a lot of practices.
1: There are many practices. there yes. are many tools in the toolbox and <laughs>
0: many tools in the toolbox that's so well said that's we so gotta true. keep
1: trying different tools until yeah. we find out what is working and tools evolve as we grow in our life. these tools yeah. evolve. you know what one kind of meditation that we are doing it right now may not work in the future so we have to be cognizant and mindful of what is working. In yeah. that moment in our life. So Patricia, I'm going to borrow this statement from your work as we're talking about train that whenever we have negative thoughts, we can try saying cancel cancel to ah, yes, yes. out of our mind and come yes. back to the present moment. So one one way of saying is cancel, cancel. And I heard somewhere that we can say stop, stop. Mm-hmm. Whenever negative thoughts, feelings come arise in our mind, stop, stop. And mm-hmm. this requires Awareness, and mindfulness. Yes. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can visit https colon slash slash me. And I S H A N T G A R G dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed, and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again.